Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Larry McShane and Dan Pearson, authors of Last Dawn Standing. Our guests are Larry McShane and Dan Pearson, and they are the authors of this book, Last Dawn Standing, The Secret Life of Mob Boss Ralph Natale. Uh, Dan, we'll start with you. How did this book come about? Whew, good question. I received a phone call from a mutual acquaintance of mine and Ralph's, and um, Ralph wanted to tell his truth, and I asked him, why me? And Ralph and I had a mutual acquaintance through our conversation of a gentleman by the name of Sonny Francis back in New York. And through that conversation came a certain comfortability. And with that comfortability, Ralph wanted to tell his story, but he wanted to tell his own truth. And um, I had to sit back and think about it. I thought about it. It was exciting, but, you know, Exciting is one thing when you hear and read something about a person's character and the things they've done in the past, it makes you wonder. But instead of wondering, it drew me to him. And the more I, I listened to him, the more enthralled I became by it because I was finding out an American history with the mafia. So in his words, it was him peeling back the onion. So he asked me to become the student and him be the teacher, and for me to learn how it worked. And that's where it is. Larry, how did you get involved with this? Uh, they had already been in contact, Dan and Ralph. Um, Dan knows my agent. I had just finished a book on uh, Vincent Giganti, the old Greenwich Village mob boss up in New York, uh, biography on him. And uh, they were kind of looking for somebody who could sit down with Ralph and, and spend some time with him and talk to him and then kind of assemble all that into a book. And since I had just done one on the same topic, uh, I was asked if I wanted to participate. I said, yeah, it was, uh, it was interesting for me. I'm, I'm a North Jersey guy. I've worked in New York for like 37 years. So I'm very familiar with the five families over there. Covered a lot of that <coughs> and written a lot about it. Uh, so this was you know, kind of the other end of the turnpike for me to come down and sit with Ralph and uh, you know, and he really gave me an education on, on how organized crime worked both outside of New York City and with New York City. So just he was not, I don't know how to say this right, he was not active with the mob anymore when you interviewed him? <sighs> you know, I can't really answer that. <laughs> no, no, no. You know, I don't think so. I don't believe so. I believe that He's at peace with his, with his, um, with his life. Yeah, I mean, uh, Ralph. Ralph even told me at one point that uh, he's kind of become friendly with the FBI guys, uh, who 
who were with him when he flipped and became a government witness, and he's still in contact with them. Uh, so I don't think he's active at all. And he, he's, of course, he's not active as a, as a government witness either. He, uh, he testified at the Joey Merlino trials, and then he basically told the FBI, I'm out. So they'll sometimes still come by fishing for stuff, but uh, I think Ralph is out of the game. Is, is it generally known where he is right now, where he lives? No. So how, when you, you were the first one of the two of you to meet him, right? Yes. So did they, like, put a hood over your head and take, <laughs> drive you there, or how did you, where did you meet him? Actually, he came to see me. Came to see me uh, in New York, and um, says, I'm Ralph Natale. I said, okay, I'm Dan Pearson. We sat down, we had coffee. Um, Ralph's not afraid of anyone. Uh, he still considers himself very capable. It's not a thing of tempting people or, or throwing his who he is in front of people, but he doesn't hide from anyone. Now, there's a misconception that Ralph's in the witness protection program. Whether Ralph's in California or Ralph's in New York or in the middle of the country, Ralph is going to be wherever Ralph wants to be. And that's just a fact of the matter. We're recording this now in the beginning of 2017. He is how old right now? 82 with a six-pack. When 82 with a what? A six-pack. I don't have not, a six-pack. He has a six-pack. Ralph runs every day. Ralph bench presses 140 pounds and reps of 20, 140 times, seven days a week. So I'm jealous. <laughs> when you met him for the first time and sat down with him, what was, how did it go? It was... First of all, when you speak to Ralph, you look in his eyes and you look in his face, you know who you're talking to. There is no if, ands, or buts about it. He doesn't deal in, he doesn't speak in maybes. He speaks very frank and upfront, and he, he asks that you give him that. If you don't give it to him, he demands it of you. It was, um, it was like, Dealing with American history, I mean, when you hear about Hoffa, then you see the photos of he and Hoffa. You hear about how Hoffa was killed, and he explains how it goes and how it went. Then you see the picture of him and the alleged guy who committed the crime. You know, he's telling you things that have been vetted by the FBI, and you're wondering, you know, that's not how I heard it. That's not how I read it. Then he says, let me explain it to you. You've heard it from people who, who you heard hearsay because it was above their pay grade. They weren't in the room. They weren't privy. I'm giving you something that they have no knowledge of. Theirs is hearsay. And then you go back and you speak to this person who's in the, supposedly in the know and that one, and you're like, okay, I get it. But you also feel... At least I did. As comfortable as you are, as he is with you, you feel the air of danger. You constantly feel the air of danger. Larry, what, what was your reaction to being around him? I found Ralph to be more grandfatherly than Dan. He's, uh, I mean, he's very honest. Uh, 
He doesn't pull any punches. Um, the first time I met him, I, I drove to meet him, and uh, you know, I knew a bit about him, but not much. I'd done some research before I went to meet him, and uh, before we sat down and talked, the two of us just went for a walk. You know, he just wanted to tell me a little bit about himself. Uh, it, it's actually kind of funny. The first, the book opens up with a, a murder of a guy named Joe McGreal, uh, which was a union labor dispute. And uh, this guy was the godfather to one of Ralph's kids. And, uh, you know, Ralph told me this whole story, like, you know, very, I don't want to say casually, but, you know, he just tells me this story about it's Christmas night. Ralph pulled the trigger? Yeah. He leaves his house and his wife and kids on Christmas night and drives and picks this guy up and then shoots him three times in the back of his head. So uh, we, we were supposed to meet once a week. And I got back to North Jersey where I lived, and uh, I had a car problem, and I couldn't make it the next Monday. So I called Ralph, and I said, look, I'm not going to be able to make it next week. I have a car problem. And, and Ralph called up my agent, Frank, and he said, I knew that guy wouldn't be back. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it was just a blip on the radar. I was back the next week, and uh, we got together half dozen times, maybe seven times. Did the two of you interview him together or individually? No, separately. But the funny thing is uh, we share the same agent, and we had a meeting in New York uh, with a, a British television show. And as it concluded, my son had a car, and Robert jumps in the back seat. So my agent pulls me off to the side, and he says, uh, Danny boy, so what happened? I'm not getting in the front seat. <laughs> <laughs> like, what, do you, what do you mean? I'm not getting in the front seat. So you got three guys in the back seat. I'm in the front seat with my back turned looking at Ralph the whole time we're driving. So recently we had, an, we had another meeting and um, you weren't there. So we get to the parking garage and uh, I jumped in the back seat. Ralph jumped in the back seat. So the agent had to sit in the front seat. No one wants to have their back turned. And he's, he's, we're driving, and Frank is looking to the back the whole time. <laughs> so I would tap him on the shoulder, and he would shake a little bit. I mean, look, I know Ralph a little differently than, than Larry. Um, we have some mutual acquaintances, and uh, I speak to him maybe four or five times a day. Oh, you still do? Yeah. We're... Um, we built a relationship. We built, actually, we built a friendship. But our friendship developed after the book because during the writing of the book, I didn't want to be, I didn't want to have a feeling toward him one way or the other. And I didn't allow that. But when the book was completed, and I read the book, I read it maybe four or five times back and forth. And maybe one, I said, you know, it's, uh, you're a pretty brave guy. Because Ralph is a different type of man. Yes, he's, he's a grandfather. He's, he's a great grandfather. Right. He's grandfatherly. But he reminds you that he's capable. Did he read this book when it was finished? Yes. Well, the other thing is, it, it, he kind of wrote part of it. Um, when he was in prison, you know, he was in prison for 16 years. 
Um, and during that period, he was called to testify before Congress. He refused to implicate any of the bosses who were involved in, you know, the, the mob takeover of Atlantic City, the proposed mob takeover. Uh, he would get legal pads, yellow legal pads, and he would handwrite uh, sort of a memoir. And he went back to his childhood in, in Philadelphia, uh, the tuberculosis epidemic that tore through town, and, you know, very detailed memories of all this stuff. And he, God, I don't know how long he did this, but when I met with him, I got a maybe a six-inch, eight-inch stack of his handwritten recollections from birth until, uh, I guess, probably until he got out of jail in the early 90s. Is that where you got the details of the killings? No, that, that was sitting down and talking to him. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that was in what he wrote that suggested further avenues, things to talk to him about. Uh, but most of the stuff about any of the violence was just me sitting down with Ralph and saying, what about this? How about this? And uh, he, he has a, for a guy who's 82, he has an amazing recall for... Detail. Dates, times, names, places, uh, I mean, incredible. And my father's 86. Uh, you know, he can't remember what he had for breakfast sometimes. And, and Ralph was, the other thing I would say about Ralph is any question that I asked, there were no questions that were out of bounds. Um, and we didn't have any sort of arrangement like, you know, I expect you to tell me this or him saying to me, I expect you not to ask about this. So he didn't have approval over the final no. product? No, he what? didn't have approval over any questions. He just uh, he made it clear to me up front that he would talk about anything I asked, and uh, he was good to his word. Why did he do this? He wanted, his, he wanted to tell his truth. As opposed to whatever was written about him, he said he wanted to live in his truth. Period. No, it, it's, it's just simple. It's... Um, Ralph is not what people would describe as a prototypical mob guy or whatever. A lot of ways, if you if you met him, you would think he was a, a gentleman. He is a gentleman, but he considers himself an English gentleman. He he's, dressed that way, right? Yes. Yeah. He's, he's extremely articulate, extraordinarily bright. But he comes from a time as he described to me, that the discrimination that he and his have had uh, encountered. He said he could, Italians weren't available, jobs weren't, the same jobs weren't available to the Italians and this, that, and the other. And this was the way he made his living. This is the life that he lived. But he says he was born a killer. He said there are some people who can murder. He was born a killer. Does he have any regrets about the where his life went? You can answer that. The only regret he told me he had was uh, cheating on his wife. He wishes he hadn't done that. They're still together. They've been married more than 60 years. They got married when he was 16? Yeah, they met when he was 15. Um, and that was the only thing he said that he regretted. I want to ask you something. You write in here... Um, he said, every morning I drive away from my house and I look back in the rearview mirror, then I made the sign of the cross. Did he consider himself to be religious? I think he was trying to uh, get whatever help he could get on his side to avoid being killed. Although, when he was in prison, he was a guy that went to Mass. 
he told me a, a great story about a chaplain at Lewisburg who heard his confession, which might have been rather lengthy. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think he's a fairly, maybe not traditionally religious guy, but, you know, he prays to the Blessed Virgin. Um, you know, he was raised a Catholic, and I guess that stayed with him. Did you record these interviews? Yes, yes. So they're on, do you have tapes of them? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Lots um, of tapes. <laughs> there's a, we, we can go in a lot of directions, but I have to ask about um, boxing. You say in here that at one time professional boxing was controlled by the Gambino family in New York and the Philadelphia mob. And you tell the story about Sonny Liston. Can you, can you want to tell the story about Sonny Liston and Muhammad Ali? Yeah, sure. Uh, Frankie Carbo was the guy from New York. Blinky Palermo was the guy in Philadelphia. And, uh, you know, this was when... Yeah, Jake LaMotta's written about it, and uh, Rocky Graziano, how mobbed up the the boxing game was back then in the 50s and 60s. Um, and Blinky Palermo was tight with Sonny Liston, who was the heavyweight champion of the world, and uh, pretty much considered to be an invincible fighter. You know, big, scary, tough. Uh, but he had a heroin problem, according to Ralph. And so the, the guys that are running him for the mob are, are worried that, you know, here's their big payday, right? And, and they might lose him because he has a real problem with heroin. They're afraid he's going to overdose. So the decision is made before he goes down to fight Ali in, in Miami that, you know, if, if he does OD, we want to get paid one more time before that happens. So it's set up that Liston is going to tank the fight. Uh, and it, I mean, it's a very famous fight. The whole plan almost gets messed up because between rounds, Ali is being wiped off by his trainers, Angelo Dundee and the sidemen. Something gets in his eyes and he's blinded. He almost won't get off of his stool. Uh, Angelo Dundee shoves him back out in the ring. He makes it through the round. And then in the seventh round, uh, Ralph says, Liston takes the dive. Uh, and so, you know, everybody, everybody who was in the know was able to get their bets down and able to cash in on that. Uh, and then there's a rematch. And uh, the same thing happens. Now, first fight is in Miami, obviously big place. Ali trained down there, a lot of action. They moved the second fight to Lewiston, Maine, <laughs> because they didn't want a lot of people, you know, it's a different time. There's no ESPN or anything. They wanted as few people as possible to be there when this happened. There were 2,500 people at a heavyweight boxing championship match between Muhammad Ali and Sonny Liston. And that's the famous phantom uh, punch fight. But here's a little different. Here, more into it. So many of the characters were from South Philly. Not casting aspersions to Angela Dundee, but he was a South Philly guy. Felix Bocaccino, wasn't it? Yep. Was the manager of Joe, Joe Walcott. Another South Philly guy. So the referee... In the second fight, longtime manager is from South Philly, and they have Liston. It's you know so there's such a South Philly connection here, and it makes you wonder. One way or the other, it just makes you wonder. So there was always rumors that uh, those fights were thrown. So you're now absolutely convinced that the mob called uh, told. Well, I would say this: Ralph died. has no reason to lie about this now. You know, it's 50 years later or whatever. And uh, if you go back and look, the FBI was investigating whether the first fight was fixed almost immediately after it happened. So, 
I don't think it's an outlandish claim, and Ralph absolutely insists that it's true. Both fights, not one fight. At odds of 8-1 to one and 10-1, to one, right. if you're going to get a parachute, that's the, that's the time to get the parachute. Yeah, and actually one of Ralph's buddies, right? Which uh, one? Vidino. Oh, Frank Vidino. Was uh, a sparring partner of Sonny Liston when he trained in, in Philadelphia. So there's a lot of connections there. Where did Ralph Natale grow up? South Philly. Do you know what street, what house? Oh, jeez. I don't have the information on the top of my head. But he's a South Philly guy through and through. How did he get involved with the mob in the first place? His father was in, uh, was in the mob. His father was, was a numbers guy, a pickup man. And uh, he noticed the people around. He noticed the who, the have and the have-nots. And he wanted to be a part of the haves. How did he get into it, and, and how did he rise in the ranks? Larry can answer that one. Well, yeah, he didn't, he didn't really follow his father into the ranks. As a matter of fact, there's a bit in the book, he, uh, he and his father were uh, at odds. Is that a fair way to say it? During his youth. And uh, Ralph talked about coming home late one night, breaking curfew. And uh, as he was walking in the house, his father kicked him from behind. And uh, Ralph said, if I had a gun right then, I would have killed him. That was the first time I ever wanted to kill a man. I wanted to shoot my father. Um, and, and I think what happened is, basically, Ralph found a, uh, a mentor in uh, John DiTullio, who ran the Friendly Bar and was very high up in the, in the Philly mob. And now Ralph would say that that was not a replacement father. He doesn't believe in that, that he was looking for another father because he hated his own father. He just fell in with this guy. He fell in at the bar. He liked talking to DiTullio. DiTullio told him stuff. Gave him an education uh, and kind of put him front and center with his crew. And, and Ralph, there's two things. I think one, Ralph really liked it. Two, and I think Dan touched on this, he was married very young and he had a family very young. And uh, this was a way for him to make money quickly, you know, non-taxable income. Did it pay well? It did, and, and he, he said one of the things that really enhanced his reputation was he never said no. If there was any sort of a job going on, uh, you know, hijacking, whatever, he always said, I'm available. And he was always there, and that, of course, endeared him to the older guys. How did he get, uh, what kinds of things did he do? What kinds of jobs did he do? Well, I mean, eventually he wound up being involved in, in the local unions and, uh, you know, started working for the Teamsters, met with Jimmy Hoffa, uh, and that was, of course, a great boon for him. But, you know, he did, I would say he really did whatever was asked of him. If Angelo Bruno wanted a ride from Philadelphia to the Waldorf, he picked him up at the house, drove him up to the Waldorf, you know. If there was a hijacking to be done or Ralph was available, you know, um, there's a story in the book that there was a peep show operation that opened on Broad Street. Uh, and, of course, that's a business that would be under the purview of the local mob. Uh, this one down here, the split was between the Gambinos in New York and the Philly family, this stretch. And so Carlo Gambino calls up. There's a rogue operation. You know, what are these people doing? And uh, Angelo Bruno dispatches somebody, and it's these big biker guys, and they kind of just throw him out on his ear. Uh, so he reaches out to Ralph, and two weeks later, the guy is gone. And the business is gone. Business thrives. Well, the, the business is gone. taken over, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Business thrives. Right. What, what are the businesses that everybody just sort of understood were 
mobs territory and which ones were okay. Anything that made money. So they had a lot of legitimate businesses that... Anything that made money, they made themselves a partner to. Did, so if you ran a business in South Philly, would... Were how you many making money? <laughs> how many businesses in, were you say, in money? South Philly? Yeah. Would, were you making they, money? Were they into everybody? Were you making money? If you were making money, they were into you. How would that work? There you go. Well, I mean, I guess tribute would be one thing, but I mean... You just pay I, a, per, yeah. a certain amount every month? But I mean, they would become partners, you know what I mean? They, the unions are a good example, you know. Something as mundane as, as a guy driving a truck full of beer bottles, you know what I mean? Or uh, the company that would take all the linens from all the restaurants in Philadelphia. You get control of that union and that's how you make money. You know, you can skim. Uh, when you get on the level of the Teamsters, I mean, you remember Hoffa making loans to the mob. Uh, in, in Atlantic City, there would be a way to skim money off union dues or, or their uh, hospitalization funds that they paid every month. So there was a million ways, and, and uh, I think it's safe to say they were very inventive. And back then, I mean, in New York is different. There's five families. But if you look in New York in the 60s and 70s, the mob was involved in the Fulton fish market, the concrete industry. You know, they got a percentage of, of all the concrete that was poured in New York. Uh, the four of the five families conspired to get a piece of every window that was installed in every city housing uh, building. So, you know, there were a lot of ways, and, and you know, I, I guess the obvious ones are, you know, sort of the extortion and gambling, but, but there was a lot of other ways where they used their influence to make money. Well, one of, the, one of the things is, hypothetically, a pension fund, a medical fund, right. a dental fund, an optical fund. That would be given to an agent. That agent knew to get that he was going to kick back 50% of what he made. So he didn't have to skim them. They took part of what it was. And how would the mob make sure this happened? Would they kill people or... Well, I mean, the, the agent would make money too, right? Presumably. Yeah, the, the agent. So well, it's, there's a fee on top of what it is. 50% of that fee went to them, and the agent kept 50%. So you either give up 50% or you keep 100% or nothing. Did the cops know all this? No one had proven the two different things. Yeah. And, I mean, it was different than, I don't think... The mafia... Well, look, Hoover denied the existence of the mafia, you know what I mean? So I don't think it was until the, uh, the 70s and the 80s where there was a real scrutiny put on organized crime really anywhere. You mentioned the, the Waldorf in New York right. as, as a kind of a mob hangout. Did, now, would the hotel have known that these guys who were hanging out here at the bar all the time were uh, the well, mob? It wasn't at the bar. They had a room. Yeah. A suite. A suite. And uh, you look the other way. It's about relationships. You look the other way, you may not have a problem with a union that deals with your hotel. I mean, it's a quid pro quo, but the quid went a little, little more left than the pro. So uh, when these people came in, you probably didn't see them. You didn't notice them. You didn't check them in. They met whenever they felt like meeting. And uh, they have been doing it for years. 
When, when you were talking to Ralph Natale, did he uh, talk about what the rules of the mob were? Like what sure. the do's and don'ts? What, sure. What were the rules? Well, well, rule number one is keep your mouth shut. Um, and and Ralph, Ralph did that for a long, long time, you know. Uh, and I think when he came back to Philadelphia in the 90s, he was surprised by how much things had changed since he left in 78, you know. Uh, a lot of young guys didn't understand the life the way that Ralph understood it and the way that the guys like a John DiTullio or an Angelo Bruno had explained the life to, to Ralph. That was gone. And, uh, you know, eventually he came to really resent that. I think uh, he was caught in between the older generation, the so-called Mustache Pete's, right. and the Young Turks. The Mustache Pete's looked at things a certain way. The Young Turks looked at them another way. He was caught in between. How was it that the Mustache Pete's, where did that term come from? The older guys. The guys who were born in the 1890s, 1900. How did they look at things? How did they approach business? You either agree or you get killed. <laughs> <laughs> You heard Al Capone. <laughs> you either agree or you got killed. Uh, as technology evolved, people evolved, difference of generational, he was caught in the middle. He was caught in the middle. Yeah, I'd agree with that. He, uh, he wasn't of the first generation, you know, uh, but he was of the next generation. And he wound up not having much use for the generation that followed. Now you mentioned the the New York mob and the, the Gambinos and how that. How did they? How were they governed? I mean, how did they decide who was had what territory and who was responsible for what? Well, there's a. There was. I don't. I don't think there is anymore. A commission. It was called in New York, which was uh, the heads of the five New York families. And they basically decided what happened around the country. Now, when Bruno was installed, I believe they made him a like a sixth kind of floating member. Angelo Bruno? Yes, yes, exactly. When he was installed as head of the Philly mob. Uh, but basically, it was the heads of the five families in New York. And they would get together. And if you had a complaint, you would come to New York and present it to them. And uh, that's their word, obviously, was law. Bruno and... Gambino were from the same town right. in Sicily. So they were partners. And that would give Gambino an extra vote on a commission. They voted together. So when that happens, as time went on, if you can get rid of one, then you can get rid of the other. The other one loses power. So when Gambino died, Bruno lost power. He became vulnerable. Yeah, Ralph, Ralph thought that the guy who succeeded uh, Gambino, Paul Castellano, who was very famously murdered outside a steakhouse in New York, uh, was a bad choice. Because uh, Ralph's theory is uh, you have to be a mobster first and a businessman second. And he thought Castellano was too much of a businessman and not enough of a gangster. Uh, he was proven right, I guess, in the end. But For people who don't know, who was Angelo Bruno? Angelo Bruno was the boss of the Philadelphia Mafia. How did he get to be boss? I believe it was Ida, right? Am I correct? Yeah, well, I mean, the final word came from New York. 
Um, Ida died. Joe Ida died, right. and I left her left for uh, a vacuum. And New York decides who the Boston Philly is. And you refer to him as the gentle Don. What was gentle about it? <laughs> maybe, well, maybe in order as many, as many murders as the one before him. Yeah, I mean, he was considered to be a guy who uh, maybe had more tact, I would say, than the average mob boss. You know what I mean? He had a long reign from the late 50s until he was murdered in the 80s. Uh, which is a very long time for a, a mob boss to be in, in in place and pretty much unchallenged, you know. Uh, and I think he was, you know, Ralph would talk about this. He was very well regarded by uh, by his troops. Not not too greedy, which is a common complaint. You know, money gets kicked up from the bottom to the top in, in the mob. And uh, you know, Ralph would talk about how he would drive Angelo Bruno in a car through uh, South Philly. Like kids on the corner would wave and you know, oh, there goes Mr. Bruno, you know, and he was always very good with the locals, you know, he's, he's a local guy and... Uh, so all the neighbors knew that he was the mob boss? I don't think there was any question about that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and his funeral was, uh, you know, an enormous event after he got killed. Do you know what kind of relationship he had with the police? Angelo Bruno? Yeah. I have no idea. Did it ever come up in your conversations? No, it didn't. Ralph Natale. I mean, he he never went to jail for a long time, so you know. <laughs> now, Ralph Natale did go to jail. Yes, he went to prison twice. For what? Drug dealing and arson, first time. The second time for parole violation. Right. And. Um, I think there was another drug charge in there. Probably too. another drug charge. Yeah. How old was he when he went to jail for the first time? Went to jail in 78. He was born in 35, so I'm not so good. 43? Sounds good. Yeah. yeah. 42, 43? Yeah. That was, uh, I mean, the drug thing was, was kind of interesting because he got set up by his own cousin who was working for the FBI. Uh, and I think that was an era where things started to change, where you, now the FBI was using informants and starting to get people inside the families. You know, that's the era of Donnie Brasco, late 70s, early 80s. And things were changing. And that's right when Ralph went away. So when he returns in 94, there's been a sea change in, in the FBI's pursuit of organized crime and, and their focus on the families. And Ralph comes out into this whole new world. So he w went to jail in his 40s, and he was, what, 15 years, 16 years? 16. 16 years. And that's a big chunk of the amount of life he had left. D did he have any qualms about doing this? About because they tried to get him to none provide. Yeah, I would. I would narration. say absolutely not. No, none. Came out running. I mean, he sat in front of a congressional hearing and basically went like toe to toe with, you know, U.S. senators, and he knew that if he said the right names, you know. Uh, that they would let him, they would let him walk out. I mean, yep. it was, it was basically, I don't know if it was overtly stated, but it was certainly implied that if you'll play with us, you can get out of here. And uh, that's not the way that that he was taught. And uh, he just, he would rather do the time than than rat. You know, he was called in front of the president's commission on organized crime, but he wasn't the only one called. 
there was Nicky Scarfo who was called. Right. Antonio Carter, the legendary boss of Chicago Outfit. If he had implemented Carla Gambino and Tony Accardo and who, maybe whoever else, he could have gone home and kept his mouth shut. Yeah, and I mean, with the mouth shut, he did 16 years. He, he hated Nicky Scarfo. Hated Nicky Scarfo. And when he was asked about Nicky Scarfo at this congressional hearing, he said, oh, he's a nice guy. You know, <laughs> I might have met him a couple of times. And, and I mean, he. I don't think I'm overstating this. He despised Nicky Scarvo. He wanted to kill him. Yeah. He asked for permission to kill him. And yet when he had a chance to basically throw this guy to the feds, he wouldn't do it. He, who would he ask permission to he kill? He went to his boss, Angelo Bruno, and asked for permission to kill Nicky. Why did he hate him? He considered him uh, not to be on, on kind of the level of sophistication, for lack of a better word that Bruno and he and the other people in Philadelphia were. You know, he's out in Atlantic City, out in the sticks. Uh, they just didn't like the way that he did business. There was a killing in a diner, I believe, um, which caused some problems for the family. And uh, Ralph just had no use for the guy. One of the things that separates Ralph from the Philly gangsters and the New York mobsters is they usually never left their area. Ralph was all over the country, either as a union organizer, as a fixer, um, living in Palm Springs with the Chicago mob, the Chicago outfit, being in New York. The guy was all over the place, or in Washington, D.C., with, uh, with Jimmy Hoffa. Right. He was all around. And because you're so intertwined, his knowledge of things happening, guys in, his, guys in Philly didn't understand it because, again, it was below their pay grade. Or they, it was a time when people kept their mouths shut, when the mafia was a secret. He goes away, comes back to a different generation. You come back to the main, mainly the John Gotti generation of me, 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 me. Me, look at me, look at me. Yes. And the so, opera generation. Me, me, me. <laughs> so um, that's why he has so much information all around the country. I want to back up a little bit to before he went to prison. And you mentioned Atlantic City and, uh, and uh, Ralph Natale's involvement in the unions there. And you say in your book that the the mob had already divided up Atlantic City into zones of control before concrete was ever poured. Yes. And that's in spite of the governor saying, mob, you stay out of it. Yeah, Brendan Byrne, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, the, the Gambino family in New York, Carlo Gambino's sons had gotten wind that this might happen. And this is uh, before the referendum ever Yes, passed. yes, years before. And, uh, you know, Atlantic City was in the Philadelphia family's purview as Noted at, by Dan Gambino and the the commission and Lucky right. Luciano when they divvied up the country, things west of the Mississippi belonged to the Chicago outfit. Other than that, it was New York, and so, as as Larry said, when when Gambino's kids got wind of it, Gambino knew the first thing that he needed was his paisan. Bruno, who controlled Atlantic City because right. it fell under, under Philadelphia. But 
being a smart guy that he was, he knew he was going to get that vote. He knew he was going to get this guy. He didn't want the other four families knowing what's going on. But the most important thing that he needed was the unions. And at the time, Bruno's driver was this young guy who ran a union in Cherry Hill named Ralph Natale. Right, and Ralph had previously met Carlo Gambino on a couple of occasions, and Carlo was impressed by Ralph. And he actually suggested to, uh, to Angelo Bruno, remember that young guy that you had with you? Maybe you should invite him along. I think he might be good on this. And they brought in the Chicago mob as well, you know, which had been involved with Atlantic City. They had a lot of experience in, in the casino business. So that's your troika, Chicago, New York, Philadelphia. And so what they did was create a Vegas on the east, Atlantic City. That, that was the plan, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so the New York mob got a part of Atlantic City? Initially, the Gambino family got a part of Atlantic City. They kept out the other four families. That's where the big beef came in at. They wanted to eat also. Yeah, by the time the other families caught up with the news, the other thing was already in place. Gambino was a few steps ahead of everybody. So did they respect each other's turf? Well, when you have New York, Philly, and Chicago, you have a big army there. You have a big army there. But when Gambino died, and you put in Castellano, who didn't bring the same fear and respect, they start treachery rose his head a little higher uh, and, and also higher and higher. Greed. You know, greed. You know, everybody wanted a piece of Atlantic City. Well, Ralph Natale was in jail when Angelo Bruno was killed? Yes. Yeah, he absolutely was in Florida. It was after uh, the drug arrest where he was set up by his cousin. And uh, he said it was the worst night of his life. He was uh, locked up in a special unit uh, where they kept the most dangerous prisoners, all glass walls. And uh, he's lying in his cell, and another mobster comes over and who's in jail and knocks on the, the uh, glass and tells Ralph, uh, your friend is gone. And Ralph knew what he meant. And uh, he was both enraged and impotent, you know? There was nothing he could do. And uh, he really blamed a lot of the people who were around Bruno at the time, including Phil Testa, uh, who succeeded Bruno as the boss, for not seeing the signs that, that there was something happening within the family. And I think he would say to this day that he believes if he had been out of prison that this never would have happened. He would not have allowed it to happen. Who was in on the... Why was the Angelo Bruno killed? I think greed, again, you know. Um, Tony Caponegro, who was a capo up in Newark, he was under sway of the Philadelphia family. Uh, John Stanfa... Uh, there were a couple other guys. Frank Sindone. Uh, they just then. Caponegro was the consigliere. He was an advisor to Bruno. Uh, he felt like they weren't getting enough money and enough attention from the uh, from the boss, and so this plot was set into motion. Now there's there's kind of a great classic mob double cross in this. You need the uh, approval of the commission, supposedly, to kill a boss has to be agreed on by the, the heads of the New York families. Caponegro goes to Funzitieri, who's a high-ranking guy in the Genovese family, and mentions, like, you know, we're thinking it might be time for a change in Philadelphia. 
Uh, and Thierry thinking, like, you know, it might not be bad to have our own guy in Philadelphia, and this might help us with the docks in New Jersey that we run, uh, kind of gives him a, yeah, you know, you, you should do that. But, you should think about that. But, it, but Thierry never goes back to the commission. So basically it's an unsanctioned hit. But we go back a little more because Thierry and Caponegro right. had a beef over a Shylock book. And what happened was it went in front of the commission. Caponegro wins. Thierry never forgets. Caponegro comes back to Thierry later on and... Yeah, so, you know, he he steers him towards this without telling him, I never checked with the five families. So Caponegro goes thinking, I have the approval of this guy from New York, but you don't have the approval of all the guys in New York. And so when when Bruno is killed and, you know, they figure out fairly quickly who is responsible, uh, you know, the commission meets and the Genovese family says nothing about their, their role in this. And, of course, the commission agrees these guys who killed Bruno should all be killed. Were they? Yeah. Yeah. Caponegro was found in, in the Bronx with... Uh, well, his brother-in-law. $100 bills stuffs, uh, stuffed in various places as assigned everybody else that they were killed because they were greedy. And they, were, they weren't just killed. I mean, they were tortured and stabbed and shot repeatedly. Uh, it, was, it was done to make them feel as much pain as possible, but also to let other people know that this would not be tolerated. And uh, Thierry got the book, got the Shylock book. What is the Shylock book? I loaned that money on the street. You know, at uh, a high rate of interest. <laughs> at IRS interest. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now, what was, uh, when, uh, when Ralph Natale was in prison, how was he keeping in touch with his, his guys? And was he keeping up on, on mob activity? Phone calls, guys who get locked up come in, and he pumped them for information, pumped them, pumped them, pumped them. Did he control things from prison? Well, I don't think you could say he controlled things, but what he did was he kept his relationships. I mean, when you're in that, in that field, you're in and out of prison, or someone's in and out of prison, and the person who comes in is a new person. If you've been there for 15, 16 years, by the time you're in there, in your fifth year, and someone comes in, you pump him for that information. He keeps you up to date. He, he became almost like a, for lack of a better term, like a gossip columnist pulling together items from everybody who passed through the prison. There's stories in the book where I would say to him, well, how could you know this? And uh, he would say, I, I heard it from the people who were involved. You know, uh, they either passed through prison or he was in contact with them some way. Uh, but he insists that anything that's in there he f heard firsthand or participated in himself. But didn't the prison guards listen to all the conversations and know everything that was being said? No, I mean... There's a story in the book that when uh, Joey Merlino came to visit him in prison where they were setting up Ralph's return to become the boss of Philadelphia, where they just walked out into the prison yard and they were all smoking cigars and Ralph kind of laid out his whole vision. So, yeah, I don't think there was, I mean, I know there was not that kind of attention being paid to him. I mean, we talk, Ralph also talks about when Constellano was killed, the plotting of it was taking place. The guys came in from New York to speak to the other guys who were in place in New York, from New York, in prison. So he was privy to the whole situation. Then when it happened, it came over the news. 
he knew what happened. So he was uh, a revered, respected member of the mafia. How did his family get by for his 16 years that he was in jail? Well, I mean, it, this is one of the things that drove Ralph crazy. I mean, at one point, his wife was working as a housekeeper for other people cleaning houses, you know. Uh, and that's, a, I should say, that that's really a big factor in, in kind of the beginning of Ralph's imprisonment. When he went away, he was promised that his family would get an envelope, a cash envelope, so that his wife, and they had five kids, you know, uh, would always have money while he was locked up. And when Angelo Bruno was killed, Testa stopped sending the envelope. Uh, I think he blamed Scarfo a bit for that being involved as well. Uh, but this just stuck in Ralph's craw forever. So when he gets out in 94 and he forms his alliance with Joey Merlino, they make a pact. If I go to jail, you'll take care of my wife and kids. Or in Joey's case, I think it was a girlfriend and his mother, Raffleton. And uh, the same thing happens again. Ralph goes to jail. The envelopes never come. And uh, that's basically the motivation for Ralph going to the FBI and saying, I'm willing to cooperate and testify against uh, Joey Merlino and the rest of his crew. When did he do that? I mean, is 98 was when he was arrested, 99, 2000. So he was in jail the second time when? Oh, yeah, he, yeah. They brought him in from prison. They would ship his suits so he could look good up on the uh, witness stand. And uh, he, I mean, if he talks about Merlino and that group now, he'd go from zero to 60. You know, his, his voice gets, gets kind of growly and a little deeper when he, when he gets into that kind of thing, when he's telling you an old story or bringing up an old grudge. And, I mean, it's clear that to this day, I mean, Merlino just got arrested again last year. And uh, I was asking Ralph about it, and, you know, he's still got nothing good to say. Did the people that he testified against go to jail? Uh, Merlino was acquitted of the biggest charges, although he wound up going to jail. Uh, but that didn't bother Ralph because Ralph's attitude is, you know, the judicial system is the judicial system. I have my own set of values. I did what I thought was right. I testified against this punk, and so be it. After the, that, it's out of my hands. The ironic part is he did more time right. than the people he testified against. The U.S. attorney wanted to put him away for life. And the handlers, FBI and so on and so forth, had to fight for hours to... No, the judge wanted to put him away. Yes. The U.S. attorney on Ralph's, was on Ralph's side had to fight with the judge for four hours to get him to 13 years. And this is, this is a time, uh, we should be clear about this, Sammy Gravano killed 19 people and confessed to killing 19 people. You know, might have been more. I've heard things. And got five years. So Ralph said, you know, I, I didn't think I'd get the Gravano deal, but I didn't think I'd get what I got, you know? So, uh, oh, I want to back up again. Have you got out of jail the first time you said he, he became the Philadelphia boss? Right. How did he walk out of jail and walk right into being the Philadelphia boss? Weren't there other people saying, well, no, wait a minute, I'm the boss? Remember, he was, he was basically getting information from this one, from that one, from this one. Well, Joey Molino comes to prison. 
And this one, Gali works. He finds out what's going on. Molino going out didn't have the contact or the respect from the New York families. So he wasn't going to be appointed. But Ralph had the respect from the New York families to be able to be appointed. Yeah, and th I mean, they basically, there were people that were killed before Ralph ever got out of prison to sort of ease the way for this. And the other thing that happened is John Stanfa, who uh, Angelo Bruno's driver on the night of the killing, had been sent to jail. He had been running the family. So it sort of all worked out perfectly. There's a vortex. There's nobody there. This mob war has already started and, and kind of swung in Ralph's favor. And so when he comes out in 94, he can just step right into the, the spot that he had wanted for, you know, the last 16, 17 years. You write about a lot of mob killings that happened after Phil Testa was killed and about Sal Testa Sa doing uh, a lot Yeah, of yeah, Salvi Testa. Salvi Testa. Right? Yeah. Well, Salvi Testa had the problem of jealousy. Nicky Scarfo was jealous of Salvi Testa. The New York Times, I believe it was, no, Wall, Wall Street, Street Journal. Journal. Wall Street yeah. Journal wrote a, a, a big piece on Salvi Testa. Yeah, and uh, Nicky Scarfo saw it, didn't like it, maybe felt threatened, so he killed first. And I think, I think Scarfo also saw him as a threat. He's a young... Salvi Testa, young, handsome, popular guy, you know. Everybody liked him. He was seen as like the next great Philadelphia mobster. He had the lineage with his father. Uh, guys like Ralph, older guys, really liked him and respected him. And, uh, you know, so if you have a guy like that who's in the family, how does that affect your position, you know? Is this, is this the next guy? And, and I think that was another thing where they butted heads. So uh, Ralph Natale now, is, is his wife still alive? Yeah. And kids? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did you talk to any of his kids? Sure. Were they, were, they, they knew what was going on? Did any of them go into the family business? He no. insisted not. As a matter of fact, I think this is in the book. He moved out of South Philly to an Irish neighborhood because he said he wanted his children to have nothing to do with organized crime. And they don't. Yeah, so that was a decision he made as a young man. What's going on with the Philly mob now? <laughs> well, I mean, I can tell you this. Joey Merlino was arrested in Florida last year, and they said he was running the Philadelphia mob from Florida. So <laughs> and what I'm it, it doesn't is, speak well of its prospects, you know what I mean? What I'm told is he's supposed to be discharged, yes, now, but he's facing another medical insurance charge which is the big one they feel is going to stick. But that's what they say. We'll see what happens. Why the fascination with the mob? Why are, are books and movies and TV shows about the mob so popular? You know, the, the thing about the mob, this is what my belief, people come here, came to America, not getting the same opportunities, and they wind up becoming parasites to their own people. They don't see themselves as parasites, but you need a loan. You can't go. You go to the bank. You can't get a loan. So you go to this guy. He, you're paying usurious rates, but you got the loan. Now you open a business. Now that same guy you got the loan from sees you have a business. Now he wants a little piece of your business, 
and it just gloms from there and it goes. So it's not just the Italians, the Irish, the, the blacks, the Hispanics. The immigrants feed on their own. And then the children of immigrants who go into a different lifestyle and, and become educated, some go away from it, some still stay. But it is just what it is. It's people feeding off their own. I, I think it's the personalities that attract you, you know, to, to read Ralph's story uh, is, I think Dan touched on it, it's, it's like history, it's kind of an alternative history, you know, maybe a bad term to use these days, alternative <laughs> anything, but it, it's a history that a lot of people aren't aware of, um, and it's the same thing, you know, a lot of these guys are larger than life, you know, Al Capone, 70 years later people talk about, you know, John Gotti in New York, the Dapper Don. Uh, the, the, people like to hear about them and hear things they don't know about them. And I think also people like that sort of outlaw image, you know? Uh, they don't necessarily associate all the bloodshed and the family's ruin and that type of thing, which is the reality of it, you know? They like the outlaw idea, you know, John Gotti living outside the law, sticking it to the FBI. Uh, so I think that's part of the attraction. Tell the doctor on your own door. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are out of time. We've been speaking with Larry McShane and Dan Pearson. They are the authors of this book, Last Don Standing, The Secret Life of Mob Boss Ralph Natale. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you, you for having much. us. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.